so many people are too precious and won't adapt and will think, you know, no, it's my creative choice. I want the character to say this. And the producer says, no, for whatever reason, it could be logistical, it could be a creative reason. But that flexibility to take notes that are given to you, I think everybody should do that because if you, if you can't adapt, you're in trouble. Welcome to the Behind the Scenes podcast. This is Michael Golab. Today I'm talking to Jeff Lindsay. Jeff Lindsay is a writer, director and pronunciation coach. Today he talks about the crucial skill of reality testing your work on a live audience, the significance of reframing bad events, the importance of not being too precious about your work, the significance of adaptability in any creative profession, the correlation between hard work and luck, and so much more. Jeff trained as a director at the Bournemouth Film School and has an MA from UCL and an MA and PhD from University of California, Los Angeles, and worked as a lecturer in phonetics at University College in London. He directed Michael Palin in How to Use Your Coconuts in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and musician Lang Lang and actress Heather Graham in The Flying Machine. He also wrote episodes for EastEnders, The Bill, and created the screenplay and arranged the music for the Oscar shortlisted film Magic Piano. He was interviewed by Stephen Fry on the BBC radio series Fry's English Delight. He also published his book English After RP in 2019, about which famous phonetician and Esperantist John C. Wells said, It is a book I wish I'd written myself, but I don't think I would have been able to make such a good job of it. And now I bring you Jeff Lindsay. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? Thanks for joining me. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. So working with you, Jeff, I very quickly realized how passionate you are about what you do. I mean, you truly love phonetics, accents, different languages. I guess that's why working with you is so rewarding, because you truly live what you teach. Thank it seems like it's not just yeah yeah it does it seems like it's not just a job for you but it's truly a calling why does this give you so much joy well i think that's quite difficult to say but certainly it goes way back into childhood quite early childhood i think i always had some kind of an ear for this i was always noticing accents and i can even remember sitting in the back of the car on family trips you know, one thinking to myself about vowels and how they worked and things like this. Mm. And I, as a teenager, I invented a kind of phonemic alphabet or code of my own. So there was some kind of uh, um, predisposition for it, I suppose. But um, I, I think maybe maybe we usually enjoy things that we're relatively good at. And I was lucky enough to find this uh, relatively easy. So it's a kind of path of least resistance. What do you love the most about your other jobs, being a director and a writer? Another good question. Um, do you know what? I actually think that the same comment applies, that the origins of this go back into childhood. I sort of feel that, aside from my interest in speech and language, as long as I can remember, I seem to be behaving a bit like a writer-director. I was always writing stories, I was always drawing comic books, and whenever I was playing with my friends, I mean, this is, it's, it feels like a sort of fake memory syndrome thing, but I, I know for a fact it's true, and there are people who could, um, who could attest to this, but whenever I was playing with my friends, all, all we ever did was act out stories, and I always invented the stories and told everybody where to stand and what to do. 
Um, and this this went on for year year after year after year. And I wasn't a bully. I didn't have any way to physically compel them. So I sort of feel in a way that I spent a large part of my childhood effectively being a writer director. Um, and um, that sort of pleasure, I think, um, sort of stayed stayed with me, but found itself competing with my more academic interests. So the academic interests are the phonetics. That's right, yes. I mean, what I discovered, uh, particularly when I was an undergraduate, when I went to UCL as a student, I suddenly discovered that there was this um, academic area that was precisely occupied with and fascinated by these things that I'd always been sensitive to sounds and mm. accents and languages and that kind of thing and it's a bit like going to hogwarts when when somebody who has a phonetic ear discovers phonetics you suddenly realize there are other people like you and other people with this you know particular interest uh, maybe we can call it a gift um and you're not alone and you can actually spend lots of time you know learning spells and quidditch and that kind of thing or at least the phonetic equivalent mm. When someone's really passionate about something and they love their job, it's a completely different relationship and it's completely different when you work with that person than when it's just a job. So I think the first time I came across that is when I was at school, when I was a kid, mm -hmm. when I was a child, and uh, I felt like all my teachers were kind of annoyed when I asked them too many questions. Mm -hmm. But I had one teacher, it was my German and my English teacher, who always stayed there and he answered my questions. He was very patient and he really loved what he was doing. And I think that was a huge lesson for me to, I don't know, to follow and to do what I really love and to not just see anything as just a job. And I felt that very strongly with you. Well, I think, mm. yes, I think one of the luckiest things you can have is to enjoy the work that you do. And, you know, that's a that's a it's a great privilege. Why would you say it's important to keep creating good theatre, good films? Why is storytelling important? Oh, why is storytelling important? Um, well, I think humans, humans are symbolic animals, really. Um, you know, we, we live by symbols. I mean, probably if there was a zoologist or a naturalist here, they'd tell me that some animals are the same. But there are no species that do this to the extent humans do. We, we, we live by, by, by symbols and signs. We don't just take things as they physically are in front of us. We're always yeah. thinking about things that aren't here and now, whether it's yesterday or tomorrow. So we're always living in a world of fiction. Um, mm. You know, th that's symbols are kind of they're, they're representations of reality rather than reality itself. I mean, if you driving along the road and you see, I don't know, one of those signs that shows a galloping horse. Well, you know, the sign isn't a horse. It's it's uh, it's a some black uh, patterning on a white background that we recognize as representing a horse. And it's sort of it's showing us this imaginary world in which a horse might run across the road. And it's all it's all fiction. It's all it's all fiction. We 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 interpret it, and we we're always living by these um, signs. And of course, you know, la language is the ultimate language is the ultimate set of symbols. Really, that it's we're most of the time we're talking, we're talking about things that um, that are not literally happening there in front of us. And I think you asked about theatre. Theatre, I think, is. I guess it's a sort of it, it's a sort of condensed form of symbolism. It's 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 a very concentrated and intense uh, way of showing a piece of reality. 
some or or, or a, a piece of possible reality some people like you in situations that you might conceivably be in and it's i mean art is very often about narrowing down i hope that doesn't sound too negative but i think you know like say iambic pentameter right say shakespeare's iambic pentameter the whole point what makes it iambic pentameter is that it has to follow these rules it's got to be you know weak strong five times in a line and so what shakespeare did as he wrote was to eliminate exceptions to that you know he deliberately restricts himself to that particular pattern because we like it and art forms are sort of like that they deliberately exclude stuff so that you concentrate down and down and down and i think so obviously there's the element of identification you know when we when we see when we see symbols when we see stories i think inevitably we put ourselves into that situation even if we're not doing it even if we're not doing it consciously you know some people like to read horoscopes you know it's always this um how, how does this relate to me how does this relate to me 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 and i think it's yeah. it's 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 instinctive this me 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 thing that you you hear about something happening to somebody in the news you're automatically even if you don't feel consciously aware of it you're automatically putting yourself in that position and when when you read a novel or go to the theater I think this empathy is an instinctive human reaction and clearly we 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 love stories we want to see concentrated bits of reality sort of portrayed for us we want to imagine other possibilities and our and ourselves in them have you read sapiens by harari oh yes yeah wow what a book incredible guy yeah i love this man he's he's incredible Absolutely. I mean, he talks about this fiction thing that you spoke about. Oh, remind me, remind me. I've definitely read the book and the sequel, at least one of the sequels. So. Homo Deus, yeah. I'm, re I'm reading Homo Deus right now, but I'm a huge fan of Sapiens. And he talks about how with us humans, with the human monkeys, yeah. that fiction in a way is more important than reality because we, we give fiction more rights than reality basically yeah i yeah i yeah, i think i think in general we have an absolutely um distorted sense of reality and ob objectivity we we tend to you know in the deer hunter robert de niro this is this you know i think most of the time this isn't this most of the time where um you know, we're 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 elsewhere. We're elsewhere. We're and we're 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 yesterday. We're tomorrow. We're we're thinking about things that you know happened before, or will happen tomorrow, or might happen, and are not going to happen. Or we're telling yeah. jokes. I mean, we like all all this sort of stuff, and we're spending all our time, or not all our time, but it's so much of our time. Our brains aren't here and now. That I guess that's what you know, mm. med meditation and mindfulness is all about. Is saying. Do you meditate? Um. Not as much as I should. I have. Yeah, I went through a big crisis in my early 30s and um, was lucky enough to be introduced to meditation and um, Buddhism by um, somebody I knew who, strangely enough, was the, the wife of Higgs, of the Higgs boson. So I was taught I was taught to meditate by the wife of the guy who invented or discovered the Higgs boson. Strange fact. Um, and yeah, that was tremendously helpful. What's the Higgs boson? The, oh, my goodness. Look it up on Wikipedia. This is, you know, this is what they call the God particle in physics. Uh -huh. um the 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 uh so apparently it's it's the source of all matter or it's uh, the, the source of some of the matter in the universe is the higgs field h-i-g-g-s so this is peter higgs peter higgs who's i think 
still with us yeah and uh, one of the uh, higgs is one of the biggest names in in um, in physics so strange coincidence strange coincidence so because some people you know like the the tower physics some people think there are these parallels between eastern philosophy and and western western science but anyway i found that terrifically useful this um meditating um, and that is getting in touch with reality where you're just paying attention to your breathing and being in the here and the now and that's you know, it's i think you know, it's, it's just such a rare thing for us to do. So if you can get into the habit of doing it regularly, I'm sure it's a healthy thing to do. And I hereby confess publicly that I've done a very bad job of sticking to uh, meditation regime over the years. And absolutely, I should, I should swear, I should swear and promise and vow right now that I'll get back into it. Because I'm all I'm, I, I believe that David Lynch meditates twice a day religiously, and I'm sure that he gets huge benefits from it. I have to say there's this great app by Sam Harris. It's called Waking Up. I found it really helpful. Somebody yeah. else recommended it to me just the other day. Mm. Okay, so that you know, it's when a you... really good app. Yeah. Ah, good. Well, I, I did download it. I'll give it a try. I find it literally changes your perception of reality doing the meditations on this app. Have you done meditation before? Yeah, I have, and I've so I've done it on and off, and I've rarely had any any well, any changes of perception. I was mostly mm. bored and thinking all the time, and I was still sitting there and thinking all the time. But oh, well, that's uh, inevitable. Yeah, I think you have to. Be, it's inevitable, but I think it changes your relationship to your thoughts, and you kind of realize how 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 they're just thoughts. Yes, and you don't need mm. to hang on to them. But it's different to like understand it with your brain than when you understand it more with your body and you realize oh that's actually true i think um i think mm. you have to be ready for it and i was i was as ready for it as anyone could be at that point in my life and i remember i went off and did a um fairly long silent meditation retreat at a, at a buddhist monastery and this was in in in, in england this wasn't uh, didn't go to thailand it was thai buddhism but um uh, yeah, so this uh, I did the whole retreat thing and was you know really very into it and got lots of benefits from it. It's I, it, I've been seduced away from doing it as regularly as I should. How long were you on retreat? Oh, this was um, uh, what was it? Eight days, I think. Some people would say so, some people would say that was long. Some people would say that wasn't very long at all. How many hours a day were you meditating? Mm. How many hours a day? Um, on retreat. On retreat, a lot. I mean, a lot. First thing in the morning and then some chores and then I don't know, was there any probably more that morning and then lunch and then more. Mm. And then I, I've forgotten. I can't remember, but it was probably f four or five times a day. Yeah. And then some walking meditation as well, walking up and down outside. <laughs> nice. Mm. Was it Vipassana or what was the... This is, um, it's uh, Theravad, Thai Theravadan Buddhism. Yeah. Um, so quite um, very little of the, uh, very little of the sort of mythology and myths and reincarnation and, 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 and supernatural beings of, um, of, of, of other kinds of Buddhism, like Tibetan Buddhism. Very sort of here and now. Kind of, I think I think of it as being sort of Methodist Methodist Buddhism, <laughs> mm. very pared down. Do you want to talk about your crisis in the th that you had in the thirties? 
Um, I, I don't mind talking about it. Yeah, I mean, it was related to this whole... Um, I mean, maybe this might sound like a flippant observation. I, it's a, wow, it's the second time I'm, I'm about to mention horoscopes for the second time. You know, I'm not, I don't read horoscopes and I don't believe in astrology at all. So uh, why I'm doing this, I don't know. But anyway, the point I was going to make was, I'm, although I don't believe in astrology, I can't deny the fact that I am a classic Gemini. I am such a Gemini, um, mm. you know, always thinking of more than one possibility, always, you know, attention divided, always torn between different possibilities, indecisive. Um, maybe other people would say that's not Gemini, but I, I think it is this sort of two minds. Um, yeah. So and your introduction pointed out that I've done these sort of different types of things. Um, my crisis, I think, came after. After five years or so of being a salaried university academic and being very lucky to have the jobs that I had at good universities with great colleagues. Um, and I gradually realized that it wasn't for me. And there's no judgment in this at all. I think academia is absolutely wonderful and it should get more respect than it does and they should be paid mm -hmm. more than they are and uh, all those sorts of things. But for me, I, I think, you know, I'm just this jack of a few trades and, you know, master of none. I, I, I this being fully into this as my 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 job all day long and um teaching and grading and assessing and um, having to read lots and lots of current research and having to write articles and get them published and the whole thing I think I realized that I wasn't into it that much I just it wasn't for me but I didn't you know I didn't really know what else to do because it had been such a long time since I'd thought about my other desires and goals and dreams and ambitions. So as a, as a child, you know, I think I, I, I had, to the extent that I thought about my future at all, as a child, I think I thought I was going to grow up and be a creative person. I thought the most common thought I had as a, as a child and a teenager was, oh, you know, I'll, one day I'll be a novelist. And then I got to university, found this subject, linguistics and phonetics and just got so immersed in it that it, I found myself you know getting a scholarship to do a PhD in California that was nice and um, then I was lucky enough to be offered jobs so without actually trying too hard I was incredibly lucky and I feel guilty saying this because there are so many people who are who would love to have the kind of jobs that I had but they're incredibly difficult to get so you know I was so lucky to be in the position I was mm. but after five years I knew I was not going to spend the rest of my life as a full-time university academic and I didn't know what else to do and I just sort of because I couldn't see anything else I was so I guess identified with that profession that I kind of I had some sort of breakdown I got very very depressed and meditation helped you out of it. Yeah, I, 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 then I was lucky again. I, 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 I happened to know um, this wonderful person who could see that I wasn't in a good place and who mm. suggested that I, you know, maybe try meditation. So I did that and then I found it really interesting and just slowly came out of that particular depression it's not been the only one in my life um and found that i was opening up to 
the idea of doing other things with my life, things that perhaps I, I I'd been sidetracked away from by the by the um, by the more scholarly work. And that's what ended up with me going to film school for a year. Ah, that was Bournemouth. Yeah, that was Bournemouth Film School. Yes, in the mm. uh, in the mid nineties. Yeah. What advice would you give to your younger self? What do you wish you'd have known ten or twenty years ago? Ah, well, ten uh, ten or twenty years ago, I'm afraid to say I wasn't all that young. You know, so I don't know if you mean advice I'd give to myself. You know, in, when I really was, you know, very young, a child or a teenager or whatever. Um, if I could go right back, you know, I would. I, yeah, I would definitely. I think I would. I would want myself, I would try to help myself to be braver, to be more, yeah, to, to be less compliant, to be more assertive. I did an assertiveness training course once. It was a great thing. I should do that again, too. Yeah, absolutely. It was terrific. It was wonderful. I remember walking down Brick Lane with some friends just after I'd taken this assertiveness course. And all the um, the hawkers, you know, were standing outside their restaurant saying, come in, come in, come in. Wonderful food. You know, look at our menu. And um, my friends were reacting in the way I would normally react with embarrassment. Again. Oh, no, 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 don't oh, just walking away. And <laughs> just my friends thought it was hysterical. I just suddenly found myself saying to each of them, no, thank you. I'm sure you have wonderful food in your restaurant. Well, we're going to look around and look at some other alternatives. Thank you very much. Good day to you. <laughs> Without any thought about it, I was just being as sort of asserting my, my position in a non-embarrassed way. And my friends wondered what on earth had happened to me. And it, I'd taken an assertiveness course. And I think... I think that would have helped me a lot more in life. I think I have been quite, when people have asked me to do things, I do have a real tendency to to, to say yes, rather than uh -huh. say, no, I'm going to do my own thing instead. I tend to oh. find, find it attractive or I tend to be pulled magnetically towards suggestions from other people. Wow. Okay. So you find it difficult to say no to things? Yeah. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yes, yes. I'm thinking, I'm, and I'm very conflict averse. Um, so, but in terms of, it's not just a matter of if somebody says, do you want to do this? And I don't, and, but I do it anyway, because I'm expecting them to, it's not that so much as being, finding my attention and my, my focus naturally, quite readily will follow some other person's suggestion. Somebody says, why not try this? Oh, oh interesting. Mm. Yeah. When you're speaking about being more bold and being more assertive what's that yeah. mean for you like in what areas of your life do you wish you'd you'd have been more bold or more assertive um well probably in more or less everything but specifically going back to that crisis that i had i mean i i had really you know in my adolescence and undergraduate period i just i mean why did i why did i follow this scholarly academic path as much as I did um, well um, I uh, I did it because I had interest and ability in it perhaps um, not always the same passion until I discovered my particular subject phonetics um, but I think I did it to the exclusion of other things that I'd that I'd been enjoying more creative things so that when I reached my 30s and said realized realized that I couldn't be I couldn't stay as a 
as a university academic forever. I just just couldn't do it. There wasn't anything sort of ready, ready to go. There wasn't anything kind of ready packaged to do instead because I'd neglected that other side of myself. And I was very fortunate to be in Edinburgh at the time. And uh, Edinburgh has the festival and I was threw myself into all kinds of things. Um, you know, I auditioned for a for a play and got the main part. I'd never been to an audition before in my life. Oh, wow. <laughs> and um, I, I, I did uh, uh, courses and video courses and this kind of thing and very rapidly kind of, in a sense, got myself to more or less where I would have been if I'd maintained those interests, you know, in parallel with my work all along. And how do you deal with these things now with assertiveness boldness what role does it play in your life and how do you deal with it now mm, that's a good question um i don't think you know i i don't give myself full marks at all for where i am now and how i live my life i've just said <laughs> i said before you know i i think it, i'd be much i'd be better off if i went back to meditating regularly i've when i say that it's, i'm not saying it to sound because i think it maybe sounds good i, I really mean it i should um so i'm you know lazy in that respect and, and uh, not helping myself um and i think Yes, generally speaking, probably finding my own finding my own targets and going for them is something that to me is not the easiest thing because in a way it requires a kind of single mindedness and and mm -hmm. as I said, I'm I'm a sort of Gemini. I'm just I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm very rarely single minded focusing on something is just one thing is um, not as easy for me as perhaps it is for some people I right now I've been recently I've been making some videos for YouTube you know and I'm I find myself uh, agonizing which 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 what should I do next what topic should I do next and I put a lot of finding the thing to invest my energy in is maybe a challenge for me to some extent and maybe that's why when other people provide a suggestion it kind of gets me off the horns of a dilemma you know oh okay somebody wants that also i think there's a i think a lot of us feel that we you know we all want to be wanted and when there's a demand for something you know it's quite nat natural to go oh okay people want that i'll do that i mean so i think that's always there in people's minds even when they're being very creative and creating their own projects. Is there anything you find applicable from being an accent coach and director, writer in your daily life? As a writer, I think you have to, at least it seems to me, it was my experience that as a writer, you need to be able to think laterally. Uh -huh. You need to be able to think what if, you know, or, you know, what, what about some other way of doing things? What if everything was different? Yeah, that's one of you know. What if what if the lead character was a man instead of a woman? What if this? Uh -huh. oh, what if it's a period story? Oh, what if? And then it, I did a lot of episodic TV writing, and those what ifs often come from other people. So you know, the producers of the, will will say to you, um, "Oh, that actor isn't available." Okay, so rewrite the script without that without that character, <laughs> or you know, we don't have that set that week. You know, so you can't you can't have any scenes in the um, in the pub. So. So mm. you know, re find another way of doing find another way of doing those. So this so that that kind of being able to sort of turn on a sixpence, as they say, you know, to to imagine things being a different way from the way they are. I think that's something that 
um, a kind of flexibility. Yeah, I think you have to be flexible as a writer and adaptable. That that that's at least that was my experience. And for di in directing, I think directing is all about manipulation and persuasion and trying to get people to do what you want them to do in a way that will I mean you can scream and shout I suppose but I, I can't scream and shout so yeah that kind of persuasion and that's very closely related to the coaching work that I do you know you're just mm. trying to get somebody to do what you want them to do do you know are you aware of Daniel Kahneman's work yeah a little bit yeah he says success is uh success is hard work multiplied by luck and huge success is hard work multiplied by a huge amount of luck but still if you have a huge amount of luck and you multiply it by zero hard work you have zero right you can't get there without the hard work but you Absolutely. need luck but you need to work yeah you need to work really hard all you can do is take whatever talent you've got and then multiply it by as much hard work as you can do Definitely. Absolutely. No, and I'm a great believer. What is it? The the, the ten thousand hours is that it? The you yeah. know the, the, this sort of genius actually just the, the if you look at these supremely talented people, their their talent was not sort of just being able to do something immediately, but having having the personality and the desire and the drive to put in all those hours. I guess when you're passionate about something, then it's easier to put in these 10,000 hours that's that's it yes I think mm. I think for many people I don't know whether it would apply to all maybe not but um, for many of the most apparently talented people the talent consisted of the the, the talent was the passion the talent mm. was the the talent was whatever it was in them that allowed them to put that much work in of course it's not just that it's not just that but um, it's the yeah the work is necessary work 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 so Jeff uh I'm a huge Monty Python fan. <laughs> How did you enjoy working with Michael Palin? Oh, uh, very much. I mean, it was very brief. This was uh, just a very short uh, and extremely silly um, piece that we did for the Monty Python and the Holy Grail DVD release. Um, uh, it was one of the extras was... Um, because people find this use of the coconuts for instead of horses i think they couldn't afford horses i think i think that's why they had the coconuts <laughs> i think i've heard that story they just couldn't afford the horses but anyway everyone finds that so funny in the holy grail when they're galloping along without a horse using coconuts and so that was one of the things uh they wanted to pick up on for an extra and um so we 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 had this funny little script about how to use your coconuts and yeah he's absolutely every bit as nice as he seems to be very mm. easy to work with um very amenable to suggestions completely yes absolutely um yeah really really nice man and and, and effortlessly funny really that's the point i suppose we were talking about putting in the work but having said that there you know there i guess there are what people call funny bones funny bones um, <laughs> so you need the funny bones but then of course you know I mean, comedians, uh, like especially stand-up comedians, I mean, my God, the work they put in. It's like they're constantly they're constantly um, using focus groups. You know, people often sneer at focus groups for movies and that kind of thing. But, you know, that's what stand-up comics do all the time. Every single time they do a routine in front of an audience, it's a focus group. Oh, that works. That doesn't. I'll keep that. I'll develop that. You know, I'll get, oh, I won't do that again. And so it's, it's that's, you know, there, there, there's your, there's all the work, 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 the thousands of hours put in. But yeah, funny, funny bones matter too. That is such a fascinating thing. I, I heard that even, I mean, even the best comedians and stand-up comedians out there, they still go out and 
They go to little clubs where they perform their routines uh, and they don't charge any money. And their routines are really bad. I mean, because they're just trying things out. <laughs> yeah. And then they write down what works and what doesn't work. And then they perform in front of a paying audience. So people like being at a random club, suddenly seeing a famous stand-up comedian performing something and it doesn't work out. And I think, what is this guy doing? But he's yeah. just trying out his stuff. It's 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 fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I would I'd uh, love that. I'd love to see that myself. But it, yeah, God, I'd love to see that too. Yeah, it certainly stands to reason because, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, people who are very very famous for something, very good at something. I mean, one of the things that one of the characteristics that typically goes with that is being able to make it seem effortless. So it mm. seem it seems to be easier than it actually is for them. Um, and, you know, all of these things, I mean, every anybody who actually gets involved in making a film, I think the first time they get involved in it, they go, oh, my God, that's why there are all those names at the end of the movie. Mm. It, that, that takes that much work. Um, and, you know, when I, when I can remember when people have uh, hear that I, you know, wrote EastEnders once, you know, you I would get questions like, oh, how long were you were you the EastEnders writer for? You know, were you, you how many, you know, were you, were you the person who wrote EastEnders for, you know, three months or something, which of course is crazy. No writer could write all the episodes of EastEnders for, for, for three months. It's just, it, it involves so much work and yeah. you know, it, people watch something like that and think, well, you know, the actors are virtually making it, making it up themselves. The writing of it must only take about, you know, an hour or two, throw it together. And of course it's not, I mean, soap is actually technically very, very, very difficult, very, very difficult from a technical point of view. And it mm. takes draft after draft, even of those episodes that, you know, people wouldn't take very seriously. So, you know, all, um, oh, what, that's Stephen Sondheim, isn't it? Art isn't easy, putting it together. I think that's Sunday in the Park with George. Um, art isn't easy. No, it isn't. It's, you know, there's always the sweat and the, the, the effort that has to go into it. But people make it, people make it look easier than it is. And I think another, the, the second point I was going to make is um, that um, successful people can sort of get divorced from, from what people need and want. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, you know, we have this image of the tortured artist creating what he wants to create or she wants to create, regardless of whether the world wants it or not. You know, <laughs> coming at this revolutionary masterpiece being created in the attic. Nobody will ever understand it. But my God, what a genius they are. And, we, you know, we like that image. But again, if you think of um, stand up comics, I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be the complete opposite, because unless you're pleasing the crowd, you're a failure. You know, you've got to please the crowd. It's it's being a stand-up comedian seems to me to be unbelievably pure, uh, uh, unbelievably condensed. It's just so naked. You you have to elicit mm. this physical spasm from a great mm. pile of people. You've actually got to make their bodies, you know, make this noise and 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 spasm. As I said, you've got to do it, or you're or you're a failure. And so this. As I say, or, or every every routine is a is a is a focus group, and if you if you find that you're just you know maybe making movies or something and not getting that contact with the live audience, well, how do you know anymore? What's your guide? How do you know you're doing you're doing well? There's something beautiful about it because there's an instant feedback loop 
when you're in front of a live audience and you instantly see if something works or it doesn't being a stand-up comedian. Not that I've ever done this, but I can I can imagine that you learn very fast what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. I don't mean that it's easy because you learn it fast. I mean, you just instantly fail and fail and fail and see what works. So Definitely. Yeah. Mm. But I, one of the things that does interest me there is the fact that it, it's, 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 a, it's an art form that, it, that relies on crowd-pleasing. It relies on the reaction of the people mm. who can consume it. Whereas there is this other model of art that, that is all about, you know, just doing your own thing and, you know, to hell with everybody else. And, you know, how often do you hear people say, oh, oh they went commercial, you know, they went commercial, this sort of thing. Instead, in other words, they started doing things, you know, that people liked as opposed to things, things that they just wanted to do. And yeah, it's a balance, I guess. But in the case of stand-up comedy, there isn't a lot of balance there. I mean, just deciding you go to stand up there and tell jokes because you like them and nobody else likes them. I mean, what kind of, you know, are there any stand-up comedians who do that? I don't know. Would be very unusual anyway. What is your greatest failure and what have you learned from it? Hmm. Oh, I feel I've, so I've failed again and again and I fail every day. Um, I mean, I suppose the most glaringly obvious one is that you know I did work as a um, TV writer and I did make short films and then was uh, you know did director director feature length projects so I had that experience under my belt but um, had you know had that led to more things had I been able to get more of my own projects made I would have I'm sure I would have gone that way um, I mean, I, I found at the, that time of my life, um, I was simultaneously starting to get these invitations to do workshops and to go fly around the world to nice places to um, give people what I could in the speech area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, on the one hand, uh, I was confronted, as so many others are, with the with the difficulty of getting your own projects um, underway in the in the film world, on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's sort of siren voices saying, um, "Please do this for us," and then finding that I really, really enjoyed the um, the coaching and the helping people with in the area of speech, and that's where I do feel lucky. Because in terms of the actual doing of the work, it's absolutely, of all the things I've ever done, the thing that I enjoy the most. Um, So, I mean, it's wonderful to have written something and to look at the script. It's wonderful to have made a film and then look at it and, you know, you've made that. That gives you a nice sense of, of completion and achievement. But the process, goodness me, I don't think, you know, writers are lucky if they enjoy every aspect of the process of writing some do i guess and the same goes for directing i mean i don't know if it's true i seem to recall reading that steven spielberg saying that you know he throws up on the first day of every shoot i don't know if that's true but you know can you imagine if it is true i'm sure i read it somewhere that you know even he has got this sort of nerves and 
um, terror and there's so much frustration involved in directing because things can never go exactly the way you want to. You have to be so adaptable and you have to think on your feet all the time and answer a thousand questions all the time coming from all the the, 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 the cast and the, every department in, in the production. Mm. Um, so, and certainly that was, it was my experience that um, the, the, the actual doing of writing and directing was on average you know nowhere near as great as the satisfaction of completing something whereas in the in the coaching work and maybe this is what you were referring to at the start of the interview in the coaching work i mean yes i i have to confess i just really like doing it i really like doing it i enjoy i enjoy coaching people um so yeah failure failure was i would say in a sense um i you know i didn't i failed to um get as many projects underway as i wanted to i remember there was a i wrote a horror film script once and we were we were almost on the verge of starting to shoot it and that collapsed for various reasons so yeah that's that's kind of a failure another one would be writing a novel i said when i was a, when i was a child and a teenager if you'd asked me what are you going to do when you grow up i probably would have said oh i you know i'm going to be or i want to be a novelist um and that just that didn't happen and it never has yeah so i i i wonder um why i've why why i have failed to write a novel and i wonder whether i will do so now so what would you say you've learned from these failures that's a good question learning from failures um i i think that's the hardest question that that you've asked today um because I think, yeah, you always, you learn from everything. You learn from success and you learn from failure. I mean, it's all experience. And perhaps that's one way of looking at it to say, well, look, it is, you know, a failure is an experience because you can't, I mean, think of the stand-up comedians, you know, they tell a joke, they fail, it doesn't get a laugh. Well, that's it. They've learned not to tell that one again or to improve it. So that again, it's that purity of stand-up, um, stand-up comedy um, um, which you know I sort of, I find myself envying people who do that but I could never in a million years do it I'm not emotionally robust enough but that's you know so that's why those guys are going out and trying their material out in little clubs somewhere they, they, yeah. they need they need they need to succeed and they need to fail to find out what they shouldn't do so it's a very general evasive answer I've given you there but um learning from failures yeah well i think just realizing that you are learning every time every time you fail you're being confronted with a real experience what would be your main advice to someone who'd like to succeed in your field yeah if somebody said they wanted to be a coach i would say well really you know make sure that you know a lot of stuff and that you can do a lot of stuff in terms of hearing sounds making them etc um so that's 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 the kind of that's the brutal advice you know really really try try to try to establish that you're that it's not just an abstract desire i want to be in that position it's like somebody saying i want to be a movie director because i want to walk down red carpets you know i i want to be i want to be on those inter, i want to be interviewed i want paparazzi to follow me well that's no good at all is it i mean that's that's a hopeless reason um so you know i'd want to it's very easy to to look at somebody and think that their life is more more e easier and more attractive than it is so 
Um, another would be check that you're good at it and check that you know what's involved in it. You know, research yeah. research that career. Um, yeah, put, put put in the hours. Of course, when it comes to any particular um, career, you know, there are one can talk about details. You know, this happened to me and this worked for me in terms of individual contacts or places to go and people to see that kind of thing but the general advice hmm, and you'll get these more i mean for example okay episodic tv writing which i did rather a lot of for a few years um you know if there's a couple of easy bits of advice if anybody wants to do that and that's meet deadlines and take notes you know, that's an area where there's, you know, there's you can absolutely tell somebody what the I mean, again, you, I would still I wouldn't throw away the first piece of advice. Make sure you, you know, you've got to be good at it. If you, you know, if you if you haven't, if you can't write dialogue, if you can't if you can't think your way out of a plot problem. Yeah, that's 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 um, that's that's tough. But absolutely in episodic TV writing, meet deadlines, take notes. And I know that um, that you know helped helped me a lot because so many people so many people don't meet their deadlines and so many people are too precious and won't won't adapt and mm -hmm. will think you know no it's my creative choice i want the character to say this and the producer says no for whatever reason it could be logistical it could be a creative reason um but in episodic writing you know you do, the writer doesn't have the power the producer has the power so if it's a long-running show, besides what I found is the producers invariably know the show better than 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 you know than I did, and practically every every note I ever got from a producer about I think this character would say this rather than that, they they were just you know so often it was more insightful because they were living and breathing the thing more than I was, but that flexibility to take notes that are given to you i think everybody should should do that because if you if you can't adapt um you're in trouble and to go back yet yet again one more time to the stand-up comedians that's what they're doing they're taking notes all the time they're saying you know here here are my ideas and the the audience is like the producer on a on a long-running tv show the audience is going yeah that works that doesn't work um and the the, the stand-up comedian has to be completely adaptable has to be able to well i thought that joke was great you know this this clinging to it when nobody laughs at it just won't work in that art form and i think in other yeah. art forms you can learn from that you can't be too precious about your work no no i mean yeah unless you want to be you know if you want to be an attic artist who you know creates writes 50 great novels that nobody reads or wants to read yeah i mean that's 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 valid as long as you're prepared to put up with it. But, but you know, we we ju we judge everything. I mean, even you know, avant-garde work, work that is you know less commercial, we're still evaluated in terms of the responses it gets from somebody, you know, critics or whoever it might be. So this this loop, I think, creating in a vacuum is a very is something I can't identify with. It really makes me as an actor. It makes me want to ask you this this this. I'm fascinated by this feedback when it's not comedy when you don't get laughs you know what what how do you get this this sense from an audience is it telepathy that's something that i'd you know often wonder i mean i've, I've done a little bit of acting but just uh not 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 very much and and the the main role i played was a comedy role so that you know you could judge what you were doing in terms in terms of the laughs but if you're if it's not comedy how, how this picking up this 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 uh 
feeling that you get from the audience. Actors can feel it, can't they? I think it goes back to meditation in a way. If if it flows, if there's a sense of being in the now, you kind of, you sense the audience. You feel that they're breathing with you, I think. Mm, yeah. And you're in a in a state of flow with your with your scene partners and you, I mean, you're aware that you're in a in a play or in a, but in a weird way, you're creating a different reality and you feel like everyone's buying into it. It's a feeling that probably doesn't happen often, but when it happens, it's just amazing. Yeah. When there's, yeah, there's this whole community of people who are watching what you're doing and you feel that in a way you're all breathing together, I think. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, to, to, to kind of, maybe it's making this too technical, but mind, meditating and mindfulness, I mean, it increases your perceptions. It makes you more sensitive. Mm. You've just become aware of so much touch and hearing and sight. You can, you know, you've become more receptive. And so I guess if one's acting in a in a space that is very mindful then it could be that you are literally picking up on perceiving things from the audience breathing etc it's also what you focus on i guess so uh it's like a radio that you can turn on or turn off so if you notice someone coughing for instance you might think oh they must be hating the show but then you just turn that voice in you down and you're like oh maybe they're just sick you know Yes, so you don't, you yes. don't just focus on Absolutely. all these things that you don't need to focus on. Yeah, that's a great point. It is so easy to overinterpret um, reactions that you get sometimes. Yeah. Now it's difficult to talk about that during COVID times, right? But if the whole audience, if the whole theatre starts coughing, then maybe something is wrong with the show. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if they get completely restless and people start walking out. Exactly. I guess. But, uh, but I guess in the end, it's what you choose to focus on. And, and yeah. Yeah. But that, I mean, but the, the lesson that you are kind of teaching there, which is that, you know, if you hear this cough, don't overinterpret it. Um, I mean, like many people, I would say I'm very sensitive to to criticism and sometimes that can be hypersensitivity and you can feel a criticism where, where it actually wasn't a criticism mm. um yeah so you know it has, has to be very yeah thick skin thick skin i don't know how you develop a thick skin but a thick skin is something an artist really needs and in fact you know maybe we all we all do to some extent how do you deal with your own sensitivity how do you not take things personally um with great difficulty yeah, I, I don't give myself uh, high marks out of 10 for that at all. No, um, I find, yeah, I, I remain, you know, I hopefully being aware of it, recognising it, recognising that one is somebody who's very, very sensitive to criticism and recognising an issue is maybe the first step to dealing with it. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, you can consciously, as you were just saying with the cough, yeah, you can. You could say, no, steady on, let's be rational about this. There could be another explanation. Um, but the instinctive um, kind of gut reaction to criticism is, yeah, is, is, is tough. And I mean, just, just, just this morning, I got a notification of a comment on one of my YouTube videos. And, and I immediately I thought, oh, you know, hostile hostile comment and i started my brain was immediately composing my retort my academic you know um counter counter argument mm. and then a moment later i i kind of looked at the comment again and i just thought well hang oh wait 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 maybe it could be just light-hearted or neutral it isn't necessarily an attack at all so you know maybe that's a kind of a sort of maybe that sensitivity to criticism is a 
a form of paranoia. Maybe, yeah, uh, maybe I'm a complete paranoid. <laughs> are you really? I don't think you are. I don't think I am at all either. No, no. But um, yeah, no. Yeah, thick skin, dealing with dealing with criticism, but just making sure that something is criticism in the first place, making sure that that cough or or allowing yourself to 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 interpret, to realize that that cough may not be a sign of boredom is, you know, is a good, good um you know, it's it's it, it's a good strategy. I think it's realizing that there's more than just one perspective, and realizing that your perspective might not be the truth or the real one. Or you know, it's realizing that there's more explanations to everything, I guess, and choosing the one that's most helpful. Yes, we we don't mm. we don't know everything because yes, I yeah. think sometimes neuroses are a sort of arrogance in a way because you're you're saying you know no I know it's de this is definitely causing this somebody is out to get me if in the case of paranoia or everything is hopeless so I'm depressed um, and in fact it it is based on this idea that I absolutely know everything is hopeless or I absolutely know somebody is out to get me and if you meditate and become more mindful and become more just open to the way the world is rather than the way you construct it all the time, then, yeah, more things are possible rather than getting stuck in a mental rut. Is there anything I should have asked but didn't that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I mean, the question that came into my, my mind before and during the interview was just questions for you, really. I just found myself you know, fascinated by the fact that you're doing this podcast, that you're asking these questions. And I was thinking to myself, well, what motivates you? You know, I'd really, the, the, um, the, the, the thing that's uppermost in my mind is trying to um, dig into, dig into your psychology and why you're uh, interested in these questions. What motivates you? How do you motivate yourself? Because there are always setbacks, aren't there? There are always setbacks. I just love asking questions, I think, and I love listening to how people think and why. And it always interests me why they do what they do. And especially when it comes to to doing something, creating something. And l like you said, there's many setbacks. I just always wonder how do people, you know, get on with, with it? I mean, usually I'm more interested in a good question than an actual answer. Well, maybe I'm a bit like you in, in that respect. Perhaps, yeah, something like that. I like having conversations like that anyway, and I thought, why just not tape it? Brilliant. Because I find it really inspiring to listen to people's stories, you know. And uh, as an actor, I just love, I just love it. Like you said, when I was a child, I knew that I wanted to do it. I love telling stories. I love being being in the middle of a story as an actor, or in like creating a different reality, telling stories that hopefully move people, make them laugh, and make them think. And it's something visceral. It's something that I can't just explain logically. I just really love doing it. I mean, I what this one thing that we didn't really talk about is the process. I don't necessarily mean getting very technical, but the what the coaching dynamic is about. Because you and I have worked together, and um, sometimes it might be because you're working on a particular role, particular project. But I know that you're very fascinated in this, in in exploring different ways of being with your with your voice and with your how you speak, how you pronounce, etc. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, that that interests me because you're so. Um, I'm always fascinated by what my various and diverse clients get get out of it. Well, rather, what they're looking for, um, because they, you know, they will 
tell me again and again that it was you know a really good experience and they they learned a lot and it opened their ears up so they hear a lot more of course that you say that sometimes there's something very specific like you know getting a role because uh, they got the accent right or getting good feedback on a performance because of the work we did on on an accent but in your case very often we're working as an exploratory thing and um, you're not the only um, person I've worked with uh, who's seems to be motivated by a desire to just understand more to dig into it so I think you know that's one of the um, one of the interesting things we'd be developing sensitivities and that's kind of related to the mindfulness in a way that you see things that normally in the rush of day-to-day -day life you don't see um there's a line in one of the robert downey sherlock holmes films where somebody says holmes what do you see as he looks around a crowded room i think it's a ballroom and um, he says something like i see everything that is my curse and i think you know we all see the world world differently and some people are shocked to know that whenever i'm listening to somebody speaking in any situation it's like i can't turn off this part of me that's hearing how they pronounce yeah. um it's kind of i think it's probably even if somebody you know shouted watch out you know there's a car coming i'd still still probably there'd still probably be some part of me that noticed what vowels they used um and so it's a strange it's a strange kind of it's a spe specific kind of mindfulness, a specific kind of awareness. And that's what I try to get all the people that I coach to explore, to, to become more, more sensitive. And I think that's, there's, there's a real benefit there that perhaps goes beyond, um, maybe beyond creativity. It's something very, very deep, like, like meditation. Where can people find you? What is the best way to get in touch with you? Oh, finding me online. Um, well, my my website is English Speech Services, all one word. Um, so I can be found at my, my website or um, on my YouTube channel, which is Dr. Jeff Lindsay. In fact, um, drjefflindsay.com will, will take you to my website as well. So, um, and as long as you spell it correctly... Um, because the uh, spelt differently, um, I am the author of the uh, Dexter novels, right? The serial killer novels. He's a Jeff Lindsay too, but spelt differently. Um, so as long as you spell me, spell me the right way, G E O W F L I N D S E Y. Um, I'm actually not that hard to find um, on online because of my blog articles, which I wrote dozens and dozens of, and the videos and. Um, and my, my speechy work, my analytical work, gets is cited quite a lot in Wikipedia. So that's another thing that makes me crop up a lot on the internet. Thanks so much, Jeff. That's been really, it's been really interesting. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, my fascinating exploration. Thank you for listening. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it and you can share it on social media. It really does help other listeners find us. And make sure to subscribe to get the next episode. Thanks so much for your support. Yeah.